0: Okay, so I can tell that Paul was a preacher. And the reason I can tell that is because in this sermon, when we're talking about the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, how knowing Jesus is worth more than anything else, it far exceeds the worth of anything else. In this sermon, when we're talking about this, he starts chapter 3 with this word, finally. That's how I know he's a preacher, because he's only halfway through the letter. And sometimes I, I say in my last point, and then I talk more for that last point than I did for the first half of the sermon. And so, Philippians chapter three, verse one, he says, "Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you." Now, apparently, Paul has written other letters. Um, maybe he's referencing the, some of the things he's already said in this letter um but we know that Paul has an ongoing relationship with the church at Philippi uh that he was part of the crew that planted that church uh, on his one of his missionary journeys and uh God has given him a very close relationship with them we saw that displayed in the last chapter when we were talking about him sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to them or Epaphroditus back to them uh, since he was from there and uh so we know that Paul has a close relationship with them and he's saying, look, I know that I'm about to cover something that we've already talked about or I've already written to you, but it's not a problem for me. I enjoy doing this. I love you, and so I want to protect you. I want to write these things to you. It's no trouble for me. And now, before we read the next verse, I do want to warn you that Paul is about to use some strong language. And sometimes for us, and we live in a very politically correct, or maybe if you're of a certain... Um, tribe. You're supposed to be politically correct. I don't know. But people have expectations of Christians that if they were to read the Bible, those expectations would be different. Sometimes we as Christians, we portray things that aren't biblically accurate. Sometimes we pretend like we've got it all together, that we don't have any sins in our life. We don't have any worries or complications. And so we try to put on this uh, front, um, for those of you on Facebook, you know, you you don't, you have those people who you just look at their picture and everything is wonderful, you know? Like there's a picture of John and Emma just sitting and hugging each other. And then what you don't see is that she punches him in the face right after the picture's taken, you know? Um, And so if we were to present our true selves, and I'm not saying that we have to be completely vulnerable and transparent to everyone and all things to everyone. But we do need to be honest. We do need to let the world know that we are just sinners saved by grace. And we need to let the world know um, when we're upset about something. Now, we don't have to be mean about it. We don't have to be rude about it. Um, But if something doesn't meet what we believe should be taking place, we should say something. If we see in the Bible, we see this over and over and over again. And and sometimes it's God himself expressing his displeasure. In Isaiah chapter 1, the people have been neglecting the poor and even taking advantage of them. And God comes out and with all guns blazing and he says, you are black and blue from head to toe. There is no sound place left on your body. He's saying, I have been disciplining you Because of your wrong behavior, because you've been taking advantage of the poor and and neglecting me. And I've disciplined you, and there's no sound place left for me to discipline you. What am I going to do with you? Of course, it's rhetorical when he's saying that. And then he tells them what he's going to do with them if they don't repent. Um, But God comes out in anger. He comes out, and he expresses his feelings about the behavior that has taken place. And here, in Philippians, Paul is going to express that. In verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs. Now, this isn't like a loving statement. I know some of you love dogs, right? And dog, you know, they're man's best friend. But this isn't a a statement of affection. This, he is putting them down. He is saying that they're like ravenous dogs, that that they are, they just want to attack. They just want to get what's theirs. They're not worried about you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we're preaching through the Bible verse by verse. We're in Philippians right now. And so uh, it would be easy for me to just skip over verses that talk about circumcision and stuff like that. But, you know, it's here, and we're going to cover it. And it's an important part of the Bible. If you go back to the Old Testament, and you'll understand the mutilating the flesh and the circumcision thing in just a second. We'll tie it back together. But if you go back to the Old Testament, um, God made promises and covenants with people. And... In Genesis chapter 12, again in 15 and 17, God makes this covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. And he tells Abraham that if if he will be God's, if he will just submit himself to God's, and if he will become his, if he will obey him, then God will, will bless him and his family and his descendants. And he will have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And they will be God's people. And and he says that he makes this promise with them, this covenant with Abraham. And of course, Abraham follows God, and and God's Abraham's descendants, who we call the Israelites or Jewish people, um, they have this special bond with God, this special relationship. And God does many um, covenants in the Old Testament, and the most popular ones would be he makes a covenant with Noah that he won't flood the earth again, the entire earth. And what's the sign of that covenant? rainbow. He makes a, a, a covenant with, with Moses. And he's really renewing the covenant he's already made with Abraham. But he makes a covenant with Moses in the Mosaic covenant. He says that uh, they are going to be his his kingdom of priests. That they are going to be followers of God and the holy nation. And what's the sign of that covenant? The law. Ten commandments. And If you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, what's the sign of that covenant? That they will be God's people? It's circumcision. And it's something that they did as a sign that they belonged to God, that they were different. And there's a lot of depth to that. There's there's reasons for why that specific covenant was chosen. Um, But that's not the main point of this sermon this morning. And so I don't want to get stuck on this verse. I want us to keep moving. But if you have questions about that, what you need to do is you just need to come uh, to Terry's class on Wednesday nights because he will answer all those questions that you have for him. Um, But anyway, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, getting back to verse 2, he's saying, look out for those dogs, look out for those evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then in verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision. Now, if God says that circumcision is a part of the covenant with the Jewish people, then why is Paul now, who he himself is circumcised, why is he now saying that these people are mutilating the flesh? Well, the reason is, is because something has changed in Paul's life and in the present age, uh, Paul's present age. And what changed is that Jesus came. And Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus fulfilled everything that the Old Testament taught and, and in the sense of all these rules that were supposed to be followed, Jesus came and he showed the law was given to show us that we can't keep all those rules. The law was given to show us that we are human and that we're going to fail. And the law was given to show us that we need God in a big way because we can't stand firm. We can't uphold our end of the covenant, our end of the bargain. And so the law was given us to show we needed Jesus. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He died on a cross, and he offers us salvation. He offers to forgive our sins. When he got on that cross, he paid a price to God, the Father. He, even though he didn't deserve it, he was saying when he got on that cross, I am going to take the punishment that Philip, fill in your name, all people, the punishment they deserve, I'm going to, to pay that price that they that they owe. And he did that. And after his resurrection and his ascension, and the disciples are going, and they're making more disciples, and Peter's preaching, and 3,000 people are getting saved, and they're planting churches, and God is moving, um, there are some people who, most of the new believers at that time were Jewish. You know, Jesus was Jewish, and his followers were Jewish, his disciples were Jewish, and most of the people in, in the New Testament that we come in contact with are Jewish. Now, there are definitely some exceptions to that with Cornelius' household and some other things. But um, most of the people he's talking to are Jewish. And so the Jewish people were getting saved. They were putting their faith in Jesus. But then there were some people who were saying, you do need to believe in Jesus because he was this great man, maybe even God, they would say. But we also need to continue to do works in order to be saved. And this goes, if you know Paul in his writings, if you know what Jesus said about that, we cannot be good enough to get to heaven. We cannot work our way to heaven. We can do good works and great, we're doing good things, but that doesn't make up for all the sins that we have committed. That doesn't make us holy and magically holy again. Only Christ can do that for us. Only Christ can make us right with Jesus. Only, uh, only Jesus can make us right with God. And so... Uh, When Paul is saying, look out for those dogs and those who mutilate the flesh, he's saying that that covenant, circumcision in order to show that you're a part of God's family, circumcision in order to earn your way and work your way into salvation, that is not okay. And if you're trying to do works in order to be saved, if you're teaching that that's how you get saved, you're actually teaching people out of heaven. Because they're going to try to earn their way to heaven in a way that's not possible. They're going to try to be good enough. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people that when I talk to them about the gospel, one of the first things they say to me is, I'm a pretty good person. Well, we're all pretty good people, aren't we? But if we were all pretty good people and we were all holy people, would our world be like it is today? And so the bible is clear what it says what it teaches that we're all sinners All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and that the wages of sin is death That because we have sinned We deserve to be punished for our sin because all wrong deserves to be punished and god is good He's just he has to do what is right And so our sins have to be punished and so if we're trying to earn our way to heaven That's great that we're doing good things, but our sin still has to be punished The only way for our sin to be covered and and our sins to be forgiven and for us to be made right with God is through the sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross. Nothing else. Not Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus being a good boy. Jesus plus going to church or Jesus plus teaching Sunday school. No. It's not Jesus plus anything. Jesus. The works he did save us. And this sounds too easy for some of us. Because... We want to earn. We want to get what we deserve, right? We want to earn. But if we were getting what we deserve, we would all be eternally separated from God because we have sinned against him over and over and over again. And what we deserve is to not to go to heaven. We've caused pain. We deserve to be punished for the pain we've caused. This week, I caused people pain. I deserve to be punished for that. But thank God that he doesn't give me what I deserve. He, by his mercy, does not give me what I deserve. He has given me something much better. He's given me Jesus. He's given us the opportunity to have Jesus. And so when Paul is getting mad here, watch out for these dogs. He's getting mad because they're teaching people wrong doctrine. He's te- they're teaching people something that will not save them. Works will not save us. And then Paul turns it around. And he says, not only are they wrong, but who really has the covenant with God? Because a new covenant has been given. What what was done in the Old Testament was for a season. And it was to lead somewhere. And it was good. But it wasn't perfect. And what Christ did was perfect. And so, when he says, for we are the circumcision... I know that that's a simple phrase for us, but what he's saying is that the ones who are trying to do these works, which, by the way, were mostly Jewish people, God's people, they're not the true circumcision. We are the circumcision. We're the ones who have the real covenant with God, who worship by the Spirit of God. Remember how I said there were signs of the covenants? The sign of circumcision, the sign of the rainbow, the sign of the Ten Commandments, or the law? Well, in the New Testament... What's the sign that we are saved the holy spirit for we who uh, we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of god and glory in christ jesus and put no confidence in the flesh we put no confidence in works to be able to save us jesus saves us by his grace verse 4 though i myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also now listen what he's saying here don't get him wrong He's not He's not really boasting. He's showing the futility of boasting. And how it, it's worthless. And so he's about to say all these things. He's saying if anyone could boast in the works, if anyone could boast in the Jewish way of doing things, uh, in the law, uh, and, and keeping the law, and things like that, we're about to read exactly what he says. But he says if anyone could boast in that, then it's me. So, Continuing in verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. That was just the day that uh, the Jewish people circumcised their baby boys. So he, Paul fits into that. So he, he had the sign of the covenant. Of the people of Israel, so he's saying, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin was, you know, Jacob was thought to be dead by his father, or sorry, Joseph was thought to be dead by his father, Jacob. And Jacob had another son named Benjamin. And Benjamin was the apple of his eye. He loved him. He wanted to protect him. He didn't want what, what happened to Jacob, or to jo- Joseph, to happen to Benjamin. And so to say that I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, he's saying, he's saying I'm special. Uh, not only am I of the people of Israel... I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. He said, "Not only did I live by all these things that they're teaching you that you should do now. Not only did I used to do those things, but I was a leader in doing these things. I not only Pharisees were like, kind of like the, the religious leaders of the time, who." would not only keep the Old Testament law, or or try to anyway, and make a big deal out of it, but they would even make up more rules. Now, we kind of are guilty of that today with Christians making up rules that we should follow that aren't necessarily biblical, but they were really bad about it. The Pharisees were. And so he said, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, I want to pause here, and and if you want, now this won't be on the screen, but if you want to turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, then here's what you will see. You will see that in the end of chapter 7, Stephen, who was one of the leaders of the New Testament church, a deacon, he preached this beautiful, amazing sermon telling people that they needed Jesus and that they, they didn't need works anymore, the law. They needed Jesus. He preaches this great sermon talking about who Jesus was and why we need him. And then what did the crowd do to Stephen? They killed him. They, they threw stones at him until he was dead, and you know who was holding the coats, according to Acts chapter eight, verse one, Paul. And then, actually, let me just turn there myself. That might be a good idea if I'm going to preach about it. Um, verse, verse one, Acts chapter eight, verse one. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is Saul who changed his name when he became a follower of Jesus to Paul. And what is he doing? Was he zealous for the law? Was he for his way of thinking that he should do things? Was he a zealous religious leader? Absolutely. He was so zealous... That he was approving of, of executions, that he was dragging men and women and children out of their homes, he was the leader of this rebellion against Christianity. This, uh, these persecutors of Christianity. And if you go to skip down to chapter nine, Acts chapter nine, verse one, it says, "But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord." went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he goes to the high priest and asks for permission legally to go to Damascus, find out who are Christians, tie them up, and bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. And so as he's doing this, He went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Paul said, who are you, Lord? Now, if I want to know who someone is, I usually don't ask them, who are you, Lord? You know, if Terry says something to me, since I'm picking on Terry already, I don't say, who are you, Terry? Terry. I know it's Terry. He's sitting there talking to me. I believe Saul knew who this was. He knew who was speaking to him. He says, who are you, Lord? And look at what it said. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus comes to him. Jesus transforms his life. His life is never the same. Not only does he stop persecuting Christians, he becomes the Christian who is then persecuted. And he here he is in Philippians chapter 3 writing this letter to the church at Philippi while he's in prison in Rome. And he's saying that if anyone could boast in works, it's him. As to righteousness, or sorry, uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, he doesn't say innocent. He says blameless. What he's saying is, is that he's lived by the law and he's made the proper sacrifices. And he's done it the way that the Old Testament is is telling him to do it and he's saying that if anyone could boast it's him but then look at verse 7 but whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of Christ he was it he was the man paul was the leader of his people i mean men looked up to him they wanted to be like paul when you wanted to be this zealous Jewish person, you were like Paul in that day, in that time. And then Jesus comes and he's transforming things. And Jesus transforms Paul. or Saul becomes Paul. And Paul is saying all the things I used to do, all the things I used to count significant, all the ways I thought I was earning my way to heaven, I was as zealous as you could get in my way of thinking. And whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying, I I know Jesus now. And knowing him is what's important. What's important. I count all that other stuff as loss. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's saying... Nothing can compare to knowing Jesus. Can you say that this morning? That nothing can compare to knowing Jesus. Wealth can't compare to knowing Jesus. Even peace in your home, which is a good thing, but it cannot compare to knowing Jesus. Influence. Respect cannot compare to knowing jesus being a good person who comes to church who who does whatever you think is is a a good person should do in a church it doesn't compare to knowing jesus all those things that we could add and all those ways that we could try to get to heaven maybe they're good things in, in themselves in christ but apart from christ they're meaningless they're worthless They don't get you anywhere in the end. When when it's time for us to face eternity, we can't say, but God, I was a good person. He will say, oh, I saw you do some good things. I saw some good done in your life. But the wages of sin is death. I have to punish you for the wrongs that you have committed. And I love you. And I don't want to punish you from the love side of things. But I also am good, and I'm God, and I love perfectly. And so I'm going to judge in righteousness. And I sent you a way. I sent you a way to be forgiven. I sent you a way to go to heaven. As we saw Paul talking about the way, persecuting the way, that's through Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. And so... Paul is saying that all the works, all the good things that I've done, I count them as loss because of the surpassing worth, worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All the respect he had when he became a follower of Jesus, it was gone. The Pharisee, the Jew, the religious leader role that he had when He became, in the Jewish system, when he became a follower of Jesus, it was gone. But he's saying it doesn't matter. He says, all that was rubbish. All that was garbage in the slang that you might have if you're reading King James Version is dung. All that was worthless, trash. It's the stuff that's thrown out, refuse, compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And can you say that? Is the most important thing in your life knowing Jesus? And not just the thought that, you know, I know that should be important to me. But can we honestly say that the most important thing in our life is knowing Jesus, loving Him, being in relationship with Him? Because look, I'm going to be honest. There are days that I forget that knowing Jesus should be the most important thing in my life. There are days when I can't stop myself from complaining because of my immaturity and because of the fact that I have, lo- I have forgotten that the most important thing in my life should be knowing Jesus. Jesus. We make life about so many other things than knowing Jesus. And when we do that, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment, for failure, for fruitlessness. What are we getting from it? I've never met a person who gets to take their retirement account with them when they die. I've never met a person who is able... Earn their way to heaven apart from Christ because it's impossible. And so we should count those things as garbage compared to knowing Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is putting this lightly here in what he's lost. Because not only did he lose all his status, but what he gained was persecution and pretty severe persecution at times. Many times, often. But he, he didn't care because it was about gaining Christ. It was about knowing Christ. Verse 9 that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness as my own that comes from the law, not by circumcision or obeying the law, not by works, not of anything I can boast of. But that which comes through faith and in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying that Jesus has made me right. I didn't earn my status in an earthly manner. Jesus has made me right. It's it's not by anything I've done. It's not by works. It's not by obeying the law or following the law. It's by Jesus. It's through what he did. And Paul is saying that. And, and look at Paul's Mission statement, really. One of the verses that influenced my life the most in my early years as a Christian when I meditated on it was Philippians 3.10. That I may know Him. That's what Paul's desire is. That I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection. Who doesn't want to know the power of His resurrection? Who doesn't want to know new life? Who doesn't want to experience uh, healing and all the good things that come through the power of Christ's resurrection. If you if you go back and look at the, at the disciples, um, there were times when Peter Peter was just walking down the road and, and the sun was shining and his shadow fell on a man and that man was healed. That, that's the power of his resurrection. The change that happens in our life. The, the, we, we were this and we become this that's the power of his resurrection. And all of us are, are lining up to experience the power of his resurrection. And the power of his resurrection, when we experience him answering prayers, when we experience him doing these amazing things in our life, then, yes, it, it builds our faith and we get to know him more. And that's, that's the goal, right? That I may know him and experience the power of his resurrection, but Paul doesn't stop there and may share his sufferings. You see, there, there are people today who, who are teaching what I believe is wrong doctrine and they tell you that you don't have to be sick. If you're sick, it's a sin you've committed and you just repent of that sin and you proclaim your healing and you will be healed. But if that's true, then why wasn't Epaphroditus healed at the end of chapter 2 that we looked at last week? And why couldn't Paul heal him? If that's true, why is Paul in jail? Why didn't he just proclaim his innocence and that he should be free? It's just not... I'm I'm not trying to put down people who believe that. I'm just saying that it doesn't fit into the overall context of Scripture. Now, do I believe that there were times where the disciples were able to heal those who were sick right in front of them or where they were able to, to want to do a miracle and they did it and it was done? Absolutely, there were times. But if you look in the Bible... Those things occurred when massive amount of people were experiencing the name of Jesus for the first time. Okay, the day of Pentecost, when all these people from different parts of the world were there right together. Or at Cornelius' house that I mentioned earlier, which is the first big conversion of, of Gentiles that we see. Yes, there were miracles. Yes, God was doing big things. And I believe that those things can still occur today in places where God's name is being proclaimed and the outer reaches. But we have to know that suffering is not always bad. Yes, it's bad and we don't want to experience suffering. Nobody wants to experience suffering, but what I mean is that God can use it for his glory. God can use it to help us to know him. Let's just be honest. When we suffer, those are the times in our life when we get to know God the best. We might not feel it in the moment of our suffering, but when we look back at our life and we try to think of the times when we matured the most, when we grew the most, it's during times of suffering where God really uses those things to transform us and to grow our faith and to grow our knowledge of him. And, and I keep going back to, to know him, uh, uh, that I may know him. And he said earlier that it, it's garbage compared to knowing Christ Jesus. The reason I'm talking about knowing is because I truly believe that you can only love someone to the extent you know them. When I met Rose, oh man, I loved her. I, I, I just fell in love immediately. I told my friend the first time she stepped foot on campus, I saw her and I told my, and I, and I had known her before, but I saw her and I told the guy sitting to me, I said, I'm going to marry her. And he just looked at me like I was dumb and I was, but still I married her. Uh, I loved her. But the love that I had for her back then can't compare to the love I have for her 13 years since I met her, or since she got to campus. 12 years we've been married, 12 years this October. The love I have for her now, I can't, it doesn't even compare to that love that I had for her back then. That love was real, but I didn't really know her. Now, I know her, and I'm gonna get to know her better. And the more I know her, the more I can love her. So why is Paul obsessed with knowing Christ? Because when you know him, you can love him. And if sharing in his sufferings helps us to know him, then let's share in his sufferings. Let's rejoice. I was at a a hospital this week sitting next to a man who's having to make decisions right now about whether to prolong his life or not. And I asked him what his favorite verse was. And he told me, Romans 8. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Our sufferings can work together for good. God can use them to help us to know him more, to help us to love him more. Becoming like him in his death. Paul is saying... I'm willing to die for Christ. But he's saying more than that. A long time ago, there was this song, and I don't even remember who sung it, and it probably wasn't that good, but, you know, I was like 18 and thought it was the best song ever. And, but there's, it was about death, and about how God, you know, the good that comes after death if you're a follower of God. Um, but then the last line is, death takes many forms even while alive. We experience the loss of things, the end of things, the death of things all the time. And Paul is saying, no matter if it's by suffering or the power of his resurrection, that would be great. Experiencing the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, even to death. Just so that I may know him. That's what it's about, is knowing him and then... Last verse that we're going to look at today is 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, don't take this as meaning that I may earn my way to heaven. What's this whole passage been about? We can't earn it. Works won't get you there. What he's saying is, is that I don't know what my future holds. And I don't know when the end will come. And I don't know what tomorrow holds. But by any means possible, I'm going to experience Christ. I'm going to follow him until... I attain that resurrection from the dead. Until I die, I'm going to follow him with all my heart. And so for us in here this morning, the question is, are we this passionate? Are we this committed? Is our determined purpose to know him? Are we striving just to know him more and to love him more? And you, you want to know how I know that that's not true of my life and it's probably not true of our church as a whole? That we are completely committed like Paul and determined to know him. The way that I know is because when you look at people who are sold out to Christ in the way that Paul is, you know it. You see it. They're willing to suffer for him. They're willing to die for him. They're willing to put aside their desires And put others' desires before their own, especially God's desires before their own, in order that they may know him and that other people may know him. And and so many churches today, and I've been across the world and I've been in other countries and churches in other countries, um, but I'm going to just limit this to the American church because that's the church I know best. We're not producing this kind of fruit. We're not this committed. If we were, the culture around us would be transformed. And I'm not just talking about people would align with your political views. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people's determined purpose would be that they may know Jesus. Jesus in the power of his resurrection, and that they would share in his sufferings, even to death, that by any means possible, they may attain the resurrection from the dead, that no matter what it costs them, they're going to follow Christ. They're going to obey Christ. They're going to love Christ. And for so many of us, we get so consumed with the everyday worries of life that we don't have time to know Christ and to be committed to him and to love him because we're more concerned about how we're going to pay this bill. And I'm not saying that's not a real problem. But it can't compare to knowing Christ. And we're more concerned about how we're going to prepare a sermon for me. Or teach a Sunday school class. Doing good things for God. Sometimes we get more consumed with doing those good things than we get consumed with Jesus himself. And when we do that, it becomes about something other than him. And it's polluted. And worship becomes polluted. And our lives for him become polluted. And so my question to you today is this. What needs to change in your life for your determined purpose to be to know him and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings? What needs to change in our lives to where when we wake up in the morning, our thoughts, what drives us, what motivates us is how can I know Christ more today? And by the way, when you know him in the way that this is talking about, this is transformational knowledge. This is not just a head knowledge of I'm going to read the Bible and just know what it says. This is I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to pray on how to apply the Bible to my life. I'm going to meditate on on the truth of scripture and then I'm going to put it into action in my life. I'm going to, I'm going to, the scripture is going to transform me. God is going to transform me. Knowing Jesus is going to transform me. It's going to turn Paul, it turned Paul, it changed him from a man who was all about living by the Jewish book Of how to do things. And I don't mean the Bible. I mean their perceived ways of doing things. And even to persecuting Christians. And seeing a man. approving of his execution. And doing things like that. Knowing Christ changed Paul from that. Into someone new. How has knowing Christ transformed you? And you might say. Well I've never approved of a man's execution. I've never persecuted Christians. But what's the evidence in your life that you are sold out to Jesus, that you know Him. And if the extent of your answer is, I attend church, we got to go further than that. That's That's just a basic place where you start. It's got to go further. People need to be able to look at your life and know that you follow Jesus because of your love and your obedience to Him. Not just because you're on a street corner saying it, but because you're doing it. You're living life the way Scripture tells us to live it. You're loving people. No matter who they are, no matter what their sins are, you're loving them. But you're loving them enough to tell them about Jesus, to tell them the truth. I could keep talking about this all day. I'm just going to have to stop. But how is God convicting you this morning? Speaking to your heart about your commitment level to knowing Him, of knowing Him? Or your lack of commitment to knowing him. And sharing, yeah, the power of his resurrection. Experiencing the power of his resurrection. But also, sharing in his suffering. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. And, and God tells each of us, we've, we've heard truth. We know what the truth is of this passage. And now God speaks to each one of us individually. And just urges our hearts and challenges us in, in ways that we know it's what's right. He challenges us each to apply this truth in different ways. So what does knowing him look like for you? What does obedience look like in your life? And that's where God and the Holy Spirit comes into play. And and you need to listen when God convicts. So we're going to have a time of invitation this morning. And I'm I'm going to be honest. It's already 12.04. And I know I, I talk too much sometimes. But... Uh, I'm the pastor here, which is one of the main leaders, the vision caster for the church. And I need to tell you that I lose sight of this. I make my life about things other than knowing Jesus and being like him and experiencing the power of his resurrection and sharing his sufferings. And so during this invitation what I'm going to do is I'm going to come up here like I usually do for the invitation, but I'm going to ask if the deacons and anyone else who feels led will come and pray for me, that God would help me to be the type of man that Paul is talking about here. And then after that, if anybody else needs prayer or you need to talk to me or someone else, then feel free to respond in whatever way God is leading you. But, I can't stand up here in good conscience and preach this message about a man who's completely sold out for God. A man who God has so ch- changed his life that this he's in prison, not complaining, still making a difference, still ex- extending the kingdom. God is still using him for great things. And here I am and I get caught up in complaining and and doing, um, just losing sight of what my focus should be so I'm going to ask the deacons and anybody else who wants to to come and pray for me because I want you to know that invitations are for pastors too. And then if God is convicting you in some way that you want to share or you want prayer for or whatever the case might be, then that's a time for you to be open to that too. So respond in whatever way God is leading you. And then I'm going to ask if y'all